Father, we do thank you for this time together. We do, again, thank you for the beauty of your word and that all scripture is given by you and it's all profitable. Even those that record genealogies and numbers, you show us something in what you've recorded um, in your word as you've worked through a people and are working through your people today. Um, would you be with us this morning? Open our eyes and our hearts to hear what your word would say to us about you and about us and about what you've done for us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. We are in chapter three of, I almost said Leviticus. And then we just have a mass exodus. So let's just talk about numbers. Um, chapter three of numbers continues. Can you? continues the uh, highlighting the uniqueness of the tribe of Levi in Israel. And in this section, this passage that we're starting, uh, God calls for, Yahweh calls for a separate and special census of this tribe alone. We've already had one, right? We already did in chapter one, we had a census. And then it was a military census. He's calling for a separate census for Levi. And I guess one of the things we want to keep in mind as we read through and kind of talk through this is why? What's the point of this? Um, how does this compare to the one that we saw before? So let's look in verse 14. <clears throat> and the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the sons of Levi by fathers' houses and by clans. Every male from a month old and upward you shall list. So Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Koath and Merari. How do you say that, Rodney? You're a Hebrew guy. Okay. Merari. Like Ferrari? All right, we'll go with that. Merari. It's uh, the, uh, the really flashy son. <laughs> and these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans. Libni and Shimi, and the sons of Kohath by their clans, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Aziel, and the sons of Merari by their clans, Mali and Mushi. <laughs> these are the clans of the Levites by their father's houses. And I love these sections because they give such great names. <laughs> but one day when you have children, Mushi needs to be high on the list. I'm gonna be honest, it does not sound like a Hebrew name. Mushi? That sounds very much like a Chinese or a Japanese name. Well, it's, 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 it's <laughs> Mushi? I don't know. Again, I, it's, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but, uh, but I play one on TV. All right, so here we are. How do we start? How does the census begin? What initiates this census? The Lord, spoke. the Lord spoke. Kind of an important theme in these first four chapters. Seven times we see that. Here again the Lord speaks, and, and literally it means according to the mouth of Yahweh. And some have argued that this phrase uh, actually indicates that an oracle of God was given to Moses, and Moses is just recording God already numbering the tribe of Levi on his own. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, but the the... The, the thing that's, that's a cultural reference here is that this, the Lord spoke to Moses, or according to the mouth of Yahweh, is kind of a, a reference to a king giving a command. It's in his mouth. 
Um, either way, the covenant God speaks yet again and draws out another distinction about the tribe of Levi. Where is this census taken? What's the location we're looking at? We've been at the, the foot of Mount Sinai all this time. It says in the wilderness. What does that indicate to you? They're moving, right? A lot of scholars think that at this point, they're starting to go through the desert. Some translations read the desert of Sinai. I have a tendency in my head to always think of the desert of Sinai, but it's just a weird thing. But it's the desert of Sinai. They're out in the wilderness. Where are they going? Promised to the promised land, which is what direction? East. East. They're in Egypt. They start in Egypt. They move through. They get to the desert, and they're moving east to the promised land, to uh, Canaan. All right. Uh, in the wilderness. All right. The text gives the genealogical details of the Levites so that the census numbers can be organized into proper categories according to their families. Incidentally, this is the same genealogy, just in case you're curious. <laughs> Put your nerd hat on for a second. This is the same genealogy that we see in Exodus chapter 6. And it may have actually been drawn from that passage. So we see kind of some overlap there with, with what's going on. All right. Who are they to count? Who are they to count? What is the, what is the criteria by which the census will be conducted? How's that? Everyone older than a month. Every male, a month old, upwards. What is significant about that? They've been circumcised. Well, okay, sure, sure. They've already they've already been in, inducted into the family, so to speak, through the ceremony of circumcision. What is what was the criteria of the first census we saw in chapter one? Do you remember? Military age. It was a military age. It was about 20, I think. Somewhere 20 and up. Remember, there was no cutoff, so you had these geezers out there with swords. There was no, there was no, um, no one below 20. Why babies here? I mean, the whole tribe, every male, a month old and up. What's the point? Levites They're not soldiers. This is not a military census. You're right. They're not, they're not with the sword. I mean, Samuel grew up, he was, what, three or two or three? Sure. Yeah? Okay. He was in the priestly service. Or what does it say that they're numbered a month old up? He was trained up as a child. We'll see here some duties given to each tribe, and he's probably trained up in some of that as well if we're talking about Samuel. Why would they do a month old up? I mean, you're not going to hand a month old <laughs> one of the four rugs on top of the tent to carry in the wilderness, right? They're not going to be responsible. They're going to be responsible to crawl to their mamas to be carried. Maybe. In a month, maybe not so. Maybe, maybe after a month. Sorry, I forget my child development stuff. Mine are like gone almost, and so it's like, hey, you can take care of yourself. What was the purpose of the tribe of Levi? We read about it last time, many moons ago. They were the priests. They were priests. The Levites took care of the temple, the tabernacle. Why just that one tribe? What was special about that tribe? Do you remember? We're going back to the golden calf thing. What happened in Egypt? Well, there's that. What happened in Egypt? What was the last plague in Egypt? Death of the firstborn. Death of the firstborn. The Passover, we call it, right? Where the angel of death came and exacted judgment on Egypt of their firstborn, but passed over Israel if they did the basically the cross over their doorposts, you know, in the Lamb's blood. There's just really no connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament at all. Um, why, 
Why then take the Levites? What was God entitled to from a justice standpoint from Israel after Passover? They were the first. They were sacrificed for the first. Their firstborn, right? He showed mercy on them, gave them a way of escape from judgment for their firstborn. What is the fir what's the big deal about the firstborn anyway? Your name is going to that. And all the inheritance you always goes to the firstborn. All the inherit well, double portion of the inheritance goes yeah. to the firstborn. You're right. The firstborn son, especially, we talk about some daughters later in Numbers. We'll talk about that whole thing in, in a bit, but um, <clears throat> much later bit. But anyway, um, the firstborn takes over the head of the family. He's expected to rule or lead the family after the father passes away. It's a patriarchal society. Um, the firstborn is regarded as special. Remember in Genesis 49, I know you do. Back at chapter 49, verse 3, it says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But he lost that because he sinned against his father. But that's the idea of the firstborn. This is, this is the, the child of my strength. My hope, my future is wrapped up in this son who is the firstborn. That's the idea behind it. Uh, um, after Passover, every firstborn male belonged to God. Those who held the future, those who were the most blessed of the children belonged to God. How did God exercise His right to the firstborn of Israel? What did He do? Did He take every firstborn from Judah, every firstborn from Gad, every firstborn from Reuben? What did He do? He redeemed them by how? By, by what means? By how? Lamb's blood. Okay. Sacrifice. There was a shekel that was given, like a five pence thing. But there was also another major thing that happened. And we read about it at the beginning of chapter 3. If you look in chapter 3, verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, there he is again, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Remember, chapter 3, verse 11 tells us he takes the tribe of Levi as his consecrated substitute for the firstborn of Israel. Why count babies? The lower age allows for an accounting of the estimated, the approximate number of firstborn in the whole nation. Um, maybe. At the very least, the very least, it sets apart the uniqueness of Levi in this transaction of God's possession of the firstborn. What does it mean to be consecrated to God? Well, look at the tribe of Levi. Um, it means service and honor. We'll see this. Service and honor. And so a picture of the entire tribe is given through the counting of every male one month old and upward from the tribe of Levi. There's actually going to be a second census, because it's numbers, will be in chapter 4. A second census of Levi that deals with 30 to 50 for people who will be consecrated to, who are actually able to serve presently. But this one is, the, the tribe is taken as redemption for the firstborn. There's also they pay the shekel, but this is the big thing. One tribe out of the 12 is taken, um, or out of 13 if you want to split up Joseph, um, as, as a, a re redemption for the firstborn. 
Um, all right. Hey, Kevin. Yeah. Are you saying that they left Egypt about a month ago, and so if you're, you're backing the time? How long ago did they leave Egypt? Estimates have it around two months at this point, maybe three. I mean, they were, they were at the foot of Sinai for a while. I mean, the number starts with a week into, a week at the end of Exodus. So maybe they're taking a census as to, hey, this is how many Levites there were when we left Israel, I mean, when we left Egypt. You, how many firstborn there were? Right. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't think. I don't think it's. I think it's at the beginning of the nation. Levi is counted, and it's an approximation of the. I mean, it's not an exact deal. I mean, you're going to see what twenty-two thousand at the end of the thing. Twenty-two thousand is probably not the number of firstborn males in all of Israel. I'm talking about Levites because you, you were you were connected with you know. How many he left because he didn't take the firstborns of Israel. Instead, he consecrated the Levites. And so, if he consecrated the Levites, it's how many did he consecrate? And so, among the answer the is number, all of them. And I think that's the point. It's all of them. Yes, I think we're saying the same thing. I hope so, because I don't know that we are. Um, all right. So, how many branches? <laughs> Of the Levites are there? We'll get to that. How many do you see here in chapter uh, three, verse fourteen, and so on? How many branches? How many? How many sons did Levi have? He had three sons. So everything's going to be organized by the three sons. My three sons. Everything's going to be organized by the three sons, um, and then they're given their roster of who's there and the duties that they're going to have in the desert. Because you realize. Whenever they get to the promised land, a lot of this stuff's going to go away. I mean, then you're not going to have to take down the tabernacle and carry it around. You're not going to have to, you know, carry the, all the utensils and stuff. So the purpose of this Levitical census is made clear. It's a roster of duties for the Levites during their wilderness wanderings for the care of the tabernacle. Let's look at the Gershonites, shall we? Verse 21. To Gershon belong the clan of the Libnites and the clan of the Shimeites. These were the clans of the Gershonites. Their listing according to the number of all the males from a month old and upwards was 7,500. The clans of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle on the west with Eliasaph, the son of Lael, as chief of the fathers of the house of, Gersh of the Gershonites. And the guard duty of the sons of, the, of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle, the tent with its coverings, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screens for the door of the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar and its cords, all the service connected with these. And so you see the first major clan to be addressed is the Gershonites. And they're to encamp on what side? The west. The west. You can see in your handy dandy little, little diagram how the layout is. I put, uh, well, I didn't put it. The, the person who developed the diagram put east at the top. Why? That's the they're going that way. They're going that way. What's another thing with east? Mecca. Don't say Mecca. That's the wrong, <laughs> wrong worldview. Go ahead. Where, where the entrance of the tabernacle is and where they're headed, right? They're headed east. So there's a position of prominence. Well, they put the Kershonites to the west. What does that seem to think? Uh, I don't know. No. Go, go figure. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how much we can make of that, but there is a. They're guarding the back way of the tabernacle. Um, 
That's their position for guard duty. And their responsibilities include care of all the coverings, the curtains, the hangings of the, tab of the tabernacle. We studied all of that in Exodus 26. I'm sure you remember. Five, six years ago. And the four layers of the material that covered the tent of meeting along with the screen door to the tent. So the Gershonites are vested with the responsibility of handling the goatskin stuff, right? All the fabric and all that stuff that's dealt with the tent of meeting. Um, and incidentally, during David's reign... Uh, as king of Israel, the Gershonite descendants in the family of Asaph, you remember Asaph? You, you may have read some psalms that say a psalm of Asaph. They were known as, uh, renowned for their musicianship in the temple. So the, he was a Gershonite from the West. So, all right. Look at verse 27. To Kohath belong the clan of the Amramites and the clan of the Isherites and the clan of the Hebronites, and the clan of the Uzeliites. These are the clans of the Kohathites. According to the number of all the males, from a month old and upward, there were 8,600 keeping guard over the sanctuary. The clans of the son of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle with El um, Elizaphan, the son of Uzziel, as chief of the father's house of the clans of the Kohathites. And their guard duty involved the ark, the tabernacle, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels of the sanctuary with the priests, uh, with which the priests minister, and the screen, all the service connected with these. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, with the priest, was to be chief over the chiefs of the Levites and to have oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. So there's, again, a very formulaic fashion that the writer has to give us more details on the census of the Levites. What's the duty of the Kohathites? What's the duty? The ark. The ark? Kind of an important thing. They lost it, by the way. <laughs> Found by an American 1940s. <laughs> what else? Sanctuary. They're dealing with all the stuff in the sanctuary, all the, all the utensils, all the furniture stuff, right? Southside. Yeah, Southside. I had that same thought. As I, did you? I did, but I wasn't going to say it because we're in church. Um, the screen... That was mentioned here probably refers to this, the, the curtain that separates the holy place and the holy of holies, right? That, that's the, so they're dealing with the most sacred stuff here uh, to the south. Um, so why is verse 32 stuck in there? Doesn't it seem a little out of place? What does it say about Eleazar? It does feel like it's like they chopped it from somewhere and stuck it there. It, it does, doesn't it? Except well, what? All the guards, they're keeping guard over the sanctuary, the Kohathites people. Uh huh. And so Eleazar is in charge of them. He's in charge of them. Why would it be stuck here? Why not at the end when we see at the very end talk about Moses and Aaron and all that? Why, why stick in Eleazar here? Is he a Kohathite? He is, sir. He's a Kohathite. So it makes sense because it puts him with that clan to say, this is the guy who's the chief of chiefs. Again, you have Hebrew. Uh, whenever you say stuff twice, it makes it very important. So they call, he's the chief chief, right? So, <laughs> so he is the guy that's over the, um, the chiefs of the Levites. And it's another way of drawing out that Aaron is a Kohathite and the special place that they had among the Levite clans. You've got, um, again, the picture here of, of the chief of chiefs. All right, Merari, our, our shiny brother, verse 33. Timurari belonged the clans of the Malites and the clan of the Mushites. 
I would just kill to be part of that clan. <laughs> These are the clans of Merari. Their listing, according to the number of all the males from a month old and upward, was 6,200. And the chief of the father's house of the clans of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihel. And they were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle, and they appointed guard and the appointed guard duty of the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and their accessories, all the service connected with these, also the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords. So the same formula you see here before the Merarites. Merarites? I don't know. They are to guard the framework of the tabernacle, including setting it up, taking it down, and transporting it. They're also to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. So there we have, we have the three tribes, all set out, laid out, and we get to the big dogs. Look at verse 38. Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself, to protect the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was to be put to death. All those listed among the Levites whom Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males from a month old and upward, were 22,000. So finally you have Moses, Aaron, and the priests camp on the east side. Who else camps on the east side, by the way? Other tribes. Which ones? Do you remember? You just look at your diagram. It's okay. It's right there. Judah, mainly, is what I'm trying to draw out. Again, you have the prominence. Judah on the east side, Moses, Aaron, and the priests on the east side, guarding the tabernacle, leading the people toward the promised land. Um, it's a position of prominence. It's where the entrance of the tabernacle is located. It's also the angle that is most vulnerable to intrusion. They're going into hostile territory. That's where the, the, the tip of the spear, so to speak, is on invasion. And it's the most vulnerable to attack. So they put the, a place of prominence. They have Judah there and Moses, Aaron, and the priests. What's the duty of Moses, Aaron, and the priests listed here? What are they to do? Kill anybody that gets too close. <laughs> Keep unauthorized people out, right? I mean, as a priest, their duty, we remember from Leviticus 10.10, 10, I'm sure it's right on the tip of your tongue, it says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. There's a distinction to be made by the priest of who's to enter, who's to be near God, how they're to enter God. Is it holy or is it not? If it's common, go away. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? There's a guard. Do you remember... I'm sure you do, at the end of Genesis 3, right? God gives Adam and Eve the boot. What does he put at the, at the mouth of the entrance to Eden? Two, Two angels, angels with, flaming with flaming swords. That's a little bit of a deterrent to going back in, <laughs> right? What does that tell us? God is holy. There are two things really I pulled from this passage this time that just kind of hit me. One, God is holy. It was an obvious one. God is holy. He's so holy that even though you've been redeemed by Him in Egypt, even though you are in the desert at His command, even though you are under His protection and in His presence sort of with a tabernacle, you don't go near Him. You can't go near Him. If you go near Him, you're going to be slaughtered. You're going to be killed. And rightly so. Because why? You're a sinner. 
You're not holy. And every Israelite, man, woman, and child, set up in these camps around the tabernacle, knew that very thing. There's a buffer between me and my God in the tribe of Levi. And if I go near that place, unauthorized, I'm going to be killed. And I don't want to be killed. I'm glad he's here, but I don't want to get too close. Right? God is holy. Every detail of the camp's layout preached to every Hebrew man, woman, and child that they needed to be, uh, they, that there needed to be an appropriate distance between their God and his morally, physically, and spiritually needy people. It drove home the fact that they were sinful and they did not have direct access to him. They had to approach him through a priesthood. And they were guarded from getting there by the tribe of Levi, who was counted and dedicated and set apart for the purpose of holding the sword out when you came near to, to your God. The very, the, the very layout showed the great gulf that existed between an unholy people and a holy God. Even in the midst of that, even with that huge theme and how even their camp is set up, there's mercy. What's the mercy? I've provided a way for you to come to me through the priesthood, through the sacrificial system that we laid out, through the tabernacle that, that is my dwelling place in the midst of you. I'm here, but not close, not face to face, not as a man speaks to his friend. Um, for them, he provided a shadow of the way to come. There was grace in the tabernacle, there was grace in the priesthood, there was grace in the sacrifice. But none of it was sufficient to restore what was lost by mankind in Adam. In Adam all die. Which brings us to the second thing that struck me about this passage. The God who redeems Israel's firstborn by taking people as priests to serve ultimately redeems his people's hope and future not by taking, but by giving his firstborn as prophet, priest, and king to serve. Christ is given the title, or has, has always had the title, of firstborn, preeminent, not that he was ever created, and we distinguish ourselves from Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, he's firstborn in preeminence. For example, Hebrews 1.6 says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In other words, he ain't an angel. He's preeminent, the preeminent son. Um, Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's preeminent among all things. Uh, this is not a statement of Jesus' origin. This is a statement of Jesus' preeminence. Again, in Colossians 1.18, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What does that tell us? God is holy, huge gulf. His son is preeminent and holy. And yet his son, who is the hope and the future of all things, is sent, is given to rebels, to earth, to rebels. And his son, by all rights, should also have a great gulf between him and all people. Right? And yet, as we saw last week, Rodney brought out, I thought, a great uh, story again uh, with the woman with the issue of blood. What in the world is she thinking touching him? 
He's holy. She's not. And frankly, it's not because she was bleeding. It was because she's a sinner. Other parts, of the, other gospels recording that story say, "Who he says, who touched me? And the apostle's like, what are you talking about? You're in a crowd. There's a, there should be, as the, the living tabernacle walking through Israel, an armed guard on his north, south, east, and west. I think I did that right. Uh, north, south, east, and west around Jesus to keep the common and the unclean away from him. And yet, he comes in very accessible. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Not sword, rest. How can he do that? How could he do that? Just in case there's any confusion on who the firstborn is, John sends greetings from himself in Revelation and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us. And how does he do it? And has freed us from our sins by his blood. So Christ comes as a priest, as a king, set apart for a specific task to guard and keep the holiness of God. He was obedient. He maintained his sinless nature. He, guard, he guarded and he kept the holiness of God intact while he's on earth. And subduing sin, death, hell, and the grave, that mercy may increase. So he is guarding the holiness of God Subduing and increasing mercy. Fulfilling that fourfold command God had given mankind in Genesis 1 and 2. Guard and keep the garden, subdue and increase the garden. Priestly duties, kingly duties, Christ does it with conquering death, hell, and the grave and increasing God's mercy on earth. And what happens from that? Because of him, because of what Christ has done, there's no longer a gulf between a sinful people and their holy God. Romans 5.2 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul says again in Ephesians 2.18, For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Incidentally, if you want a great Trinitarian reference in Scripture that's just meaty and clear, there you go. For through Him, Jesus, the Son, we both have access in one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in case you need, you know, to the Father. There it is. The triune God working to bridge the gap between a sinful people and a holy God in the person and work of Christ. Ephesians 3, 11 through 12 says, This was according to the eternal purpose. Even whenever he gave these laws about where the camps were supposed to be, even when he gave the laws about how he was supposed to be approached in the tabernacle, this was his eternal purpose. That he is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And yet, we need to remember, he's holy. He's God. He's king. We can access God through Christ boldly, but as one uh, pastor uh, said in a sermon I heard a long, long time ago, before many of you were born, <laughs> boldly, but not brazenly. Even in Christ, 
Jesus is not my homeboy. Do we understand that? He's still preeminent. He's still holy. I come to Him in mercy, and I better come humbly and thankfully. Not John Calvin may be my homeboy, but Jesus is not my homeboy. He's my God. He's my King. Even the skeptic Thomas recognized who Christ was, and he bowed before Him. He didn't give Him a high five. He's holy. Now here's the amazing, amazing, on top of amazing part. Not only that, but in Christ, we, Westside members, on the back end of the tabernacle, maybe, we who were rebels, who were um, sinners, who come to God in mercy because of what He did, not because of what we did, we who are in Christ reconciled to a holy God are esteemed as a race of the firstborn. And we'll end on this. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. But you have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, the author of Hebrews, <clears throat> Apollos, is saying here. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, the ecclesia of the firstborn in the Greek, the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and, the, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In Christ, we are now counted with the preeminent one. And that's a very humbling, it should be a very humbling thing. What... <laughs> What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, that we would be counted as a member, a part of the body of the preeminent one. How should that affect us? How should we live given that status before God? Holy, blameless, undefiled by His declaration through Christ. Be who you are in Christ. Don't be distracted by the shiny idols of this world. Be who you are in Christ. That's who He's made us to be if we've trusted in Him. Any comments, questions, fruit to be thrown? Yep. Uh, was it always on the east side that Judah was to lead and the priests? Because I thought they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And I thought they did circles between Horeb, Sinai, and the Jordan. And there's also, also the fact that going from Sinai to Canaan is north, mostly north. So it's to start out who leads facing east is that side, but then they always lead no matter kind of where they go. I, I, don't, I don't think that they're, I mean, I haven't seen it. Maybe we'll come across it later where that's changed. I don't see where that changes. I mean, if they go north, I assume the tribes on the north would lead. If they go west, I assume the tribes on the west would lead. But the point is that the promised land is east of Egypt. That's where they're headed. Um, so I would assume then that that's the way that it stays. Um, but I could be wrong. I haven't, read, I haven't looked at it from that angle. Pardon the pun. Uh, I got it. 
Thank you. I'm going to get an eight. Anything else? It seems a lot of times like there is a different God in the Old Testament because anybody that tries to go in the temple, they're to be murdered. Like, everyone in the church, every pastor, it seems like everybody post-Christ says that our job is to love. It's not, you know, you know vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? So there is a time and a place, usually through the government, where we're to kill, but it just, it seems... It just, I guess it just draws out how holy God is and how big of a deal um, his preeminence, his um, separation from us mm-hmm. and our sin really is. Because mm-hmm. without that contrast, we don't really see it. We're like, oh, well, yeah, he, it seems like a different God because we don't get how sinful we are. Right. We don't, we don't get our, our, our nature. We li- we sw- we're a fish that doesn't know we're wet. Yeah. I mean, we, we just live in it. It to be antinomian to, to an extent. To an extent, yeah, I would see that. But, but that, that is shot through by these pictures that we see of the gulf that actually existed. Even from a people he called his, his own, there's that huge gulf between him and, and those people. Um, and that's, that's intentional. That's intentional to draw the distinction between what is holy and what's profane. Uh, may have said this before. R.C. Sproul talks about that whole incident with the um, with the ark, you know, where Isaiah touches the ark and dies. He said that what what were they afraid of? That the ark would touch the dirt. The dirt's doing what it's created to do. <laughs> it's man that's in violation of what the creator has created him to do. The, the dirt's much more holy. Then sinful man, what are you going to do? Sully the ark with your hands in a, in a way that he is not authorized? That's a huge statement. But even in the New Testament, it's it, it's a lot more on the intention of man. It, it's a lot more on the motivation of the heart. Sure. And so, if someone is trying to uphold the um, the holiness of the ark by stopping it, <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't have number one the um, the, the the who was it, the Merites lost it. Um, two. Um, there's the there's the idea that Christ fulfilled the law, so we don't have those externals there. But at the same time, God has called us to have right hearts. He's called us to to live a certain way. There are, there are practical things that are, are working out of what the heart says. I mean, we don't we don't operate neutral. We do things from motives. Even the stuff that's in here is from. Why would you want to go to the temple or the tabernacle, trying to get around the guard, trying to get in there? You know, knowing that that's a violation of God's law. That's well, it's because I'm I'm it. I'm the big. He's going to make an exception for me because I'm so special. And that's well, that's probably, a pride thing. And that's probably revealing the motivation of the heart of the guys that tried to stop it. Is oh, this is this is not going to fall on my watch. Right. I don't want to Ma- be in front of all these people. Maybe. When the ark hits the ground. Maybe. And <clears throat> even so, it could have been from a motive of I don't want to dishonor God by hitting the dirt, which. But it's still a misconception of what's holy, what's not. Right. So, or, or what's less holy. And maybe that's a better way. I mean, Jesus died right. as a ransom for many. Mm-hmm. So sin was punished. So there's not this, oh, God was evil and mean in the Old Testament and in the New <coughs> Testament. He's loving Santa Claus, you know. Yeah. It's, he's always been just and holy. I mean, 
Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Yeah. And then Paul Paul talks about many who took took the supper in an unworthy manner. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's consistency there, and but ultimately Jesus was that that lamb and that sacrifice. Right. And everybody thinks of Jesus as some kind of peaceful beatnik hippie in the desert, you know, in the dress or whatever. And and yet the reading the New Testament, he talked about hell and the holiness of God very bluntly and very starkly more than anybody else in the Bible. He he drew a huge distinction between what was holy and what was unholy and what was profane and 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 not in physical terms, but he said, even your heart, I mean, even your thoughts, you betray the holiness of God with, with even your, your nature and your thought. I mean, so, yes, he brings mercy, but he sets, uh, what is it, the backdrop of the, of the black cloth to show the diamond of mercy? He sets the black drop of our own nature and, and the distance we have from God um, as, as a means of mercy. Anything else? I mean, to be honest, he set the bar even higher. I mean, that, that same lecture, he's like, don't, uh, if, what is it, if you burn with anger against your brother, it is as if you murdered him. Right. You can't, you cannot think thoughts of anger, it's, it, it is treated exactly the same. Yeah, well, and, and although the consequences may be different practically, there's a difference between being angry at somebody and running them over with a car. Police, police take a dim view of the latter. <laughs> they don't really address the former. But, as to God, it, it's fruit of the same poisonous tree. It's just what stage of the fruit is it in. Um, so that's what Jesus is drawing out there. And, and again, showing that how can you expect from a corrupt fountain pure water to come? You know, so there's that. Good questions. Anything else? Because we've got, you know, at least 13 more minutes before church starts. And we all get... Uh, Rodney's got a twitch in his right eye, so I better wrap it up. Go ahead. Numbers on the thing uh, smaller than what the, the Bible is saying. Like uh, the four camps that were right in the middle were like half of what the Bible is saying. Oh, maybe. Uh, well, I don't know. Some good reason. I was just trying to give a layout. I'd find something with a layout. I, mean, I didn't check the numbers. I apologize. If, it, if it's heretical, just burn it. It'll <laughs> scream in your trash. It's okay. So... So, all right, throw it in there with a Tom Petty album and call it a day. All right, just kidding. Let's pray quickly. <laughs> Again, we see the beauty of your grace in Christ. And just this picture of redeeming of the firstborn through an entire tribe. How important that is that you act in mercy or we're lost. If you don't act, we die. And so we are, again, humbled and drawn toward thankfulness and gratitude because of your great sacrifice for us in the firstborn of Christ's preeminence to take on our sin when He knew none of it, that we might be the righteousness of God and that all of the... the um, gulfs between God and His people are bridged by the completed work of Jesus, and we are thankful for that. God, would you help us not just to think about these things, but to feel them, 
to appreciate them, that our lives are worked out and centered on the beauty of the person and work of Christ. And as we go into the next service, I pray that your spirit would move in us and help us to worship authentically, that we would love you and have a reverent fear of you because you are holy and we are not but by your declaration in Christ and that you, by your spirit, are, are working in us to do that which we cannot do for ourselves, which is to make us into the image of your preeminent Son. And we thank you for all these things in His name. Amen. Thank you.